0: Well, good morning, NSA. Sarah said, "Good morning, back." That was nice. It's good to see your faces. Nice to be with you this morning. Thanks, especially to our online guests. We're glad that you're with us as well. We get to return today to our series. Something's happened, but I don't hear any screaming, so I think it's going to be okay. Uh, we get to return to our series this morning in First Peter. We took a break last week for Thanksgiving. And we're looking at the exilic life, life as a people in exile, people who don't quite fit in the world, getting questions about how do we be authentically Christian in a world that is not necessarily uh, favorable to our faith. Last time we talked, which was two weeks ago, Adam spoke about two postures of the heart. He talked about fearing God and about loving one another. These are the postures he focused on from that passage. And in this week's passage, Peter sinks down deep into some of our Christian foundations, and he's going to talk about something called the cornerstone, and that's going to be our focus today. I'd like to begin right away with the reading of God's Word. Uh, It's going to be 1 Peter chapter 2. I'm going to read verses 1 through 12. If you've got your Bibles, you can follow along, but the words will be on the screen behind me as well. As I read, please um, maybe pay attention especially to how the cornerstone uh, shows up again and again in this passage. Here's what Peter says. Therefore, "...putting aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation, if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. And coming to him as to a living stone, which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God, you also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house, For a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For this is contained in Scripture Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. This precious value then is for you who believe, but for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very... I do want to say one thing in advance of the teaching, though. And that's, uh, it's not directly drawn from the passage, but I do believe it's an article of our Christian theology and faith. And that's this. We have to recognize that knowledge is a handmaiden to love. Knowledge is a handmaiden to love. Our job is not to teach you to know things so that you could be puffed up and knowledgeable and you can win the quiz show and be an expert in things. Our knowledge is to equip, our job is to equip you with knowing things about the faith so that you can love the Lord better. Now, you know this intuitively in some ways. If you've got a spouse or you're dating somebody, the more you know about them, the better you can love the person, right? You know the things they enjoy, the meals they like, the things that bring them pleasure. And you can craft your love better because you have that knowledge. You can also use your knowledge to hate them more. You know just the right words to get them riled up, don't you? And you've thrown them out sometimes in key points in an argument just to, just to make them angry. Uh, and so knowledge should serve love. Um, we know this with our kids. The better you know your kids, the better you could buy gifts for them and give things to them. And in the same way, we want to know things about our God so that we can love Him and serve him better. Knowledge is a handmaiden to love. And so that's important for us. So while I have a good deal of information to communicate to you today, remember that the purpose of this information is so that we can love God together better. So let's talk about 1 Peter 2. And to begin, I wanna highlight some basic structure. Basic structure of the passage. So right behind me, you can see it on the screen, we've got chapter two, verses one and two and 11 and 12. Both of these are ethical teachings, right? Uh, first ethical teaching was about ridding yourself of malice and deceit and wicked speech. And the second set of ethical teaching was about abstaining from the world's temptations uh, so that you can glorify God among the Gentiles. Both of these are ethical teachings. In the middle, chapter 2, verses 4 through 10, is this business of the cornerstone. And the cornerstone is who, who he is and who we are in relation to that stone. And essentially what we have is a kind of big sandwich going on here. And so the ethical teachings are going to be the bread. And in the middle is the cornerstone, which is a really, it's, this is a disproportionate sandwich. In fact, it's a misproportionate sandwich. If I show up at a restaurant and they serve this to me, I'm angry because you can't actually pick it up. You can't, Sarah's happy, but you can't get your mouth around this thing. Unfortunately, the cornerstone is proportionately about like the meat in this sandwich behind me. It's overwhelmingly fat uh, between two very, and really it should be a lettuce sandwich with a, anyway, don't worry, I'll push the metaphor too far, it's okay. So, the meat of our sandwich today is the business of the cornerstone. What is the cornerstone? What's the cornerstone? Well, before I get into this, I want to say a couple things about this. It's important to recognize that there are a series of Old Testament motifs that figure not only throughout the Old Testament, but also in the New Testament. So that when you're reading the New Testament, you're going to encounter certain key themes that draw on long traditions that go before them. One of these themes is the theme of uh, Exodus. Remember, the Exodus story is the big, the big main event in the, in the book of Exodus in the Old Testament. Israel's brought up out of slavery and into new life, and the Exodus plays out as a theme again and again and again. Another major theme in the Old Testament is exile. Adam and Eve, exiled from the garden. Israel, exiled from their land. Exile and return to home. This is one of these big, long-standing themes. Another one is temple. God's going to build his holy temple, a place where all people of the earth can come and worship him, and he builds it, and he gets destroyed, and he gets built. And then Jesus brings up this temple theme again. It's huge in the Old Testament. Another one is the day of the Lord, right? If you're reading your Bible, you're going to come across the day of the Lord, this day of judgment and visitation when God brings his purposes to completion. And one more of these is the idea of the cornerstone. It's an Old Testament theme. It runs throughout. And I want to explain some of these things this going on with us, okay? So first thing first, what's a cornerstone? A cornerstone in ancient architecture is the first stone laid in a building project. You're an architect, You've designed. you're designing, I don't know, whatever you're gonna design, a building, a pyramid, a castle, and the first thing you're gonna do is put a stone in the corner, and that stone becomes the guiding stone for the rest of the project. It's the stone that gives you your axis of where things are going. It's the right angle that determines every other measurement and every other direction for how things are built. We maintain them in like masonry today. They're symbolic. They're symbolically. The picture here is a symbolic cornerstone that that shows the, this kind of connection to ancient architecture. But that's how it's supposed to work. The cornerstone is the guiding stone that governs the outcome of the building. Okay. Every other aspect in the building draws its um, function and form and purpose from this cornerstone. And that's something, that's the, that is what the cornerstone is. So how does Peter teach us about the cornerstone in First Peter chapter 2? Well, I'm going to talk about three ways he does this. He quotes, um, he quotes probably six or seven different Old Testament passages in what we've read, but I'm going to talk in depth in three of them today. So buckle your belts, I'm about to throw a lot of Old Testament scripture at you. So here we go. Number one is the cornerstone and Christ. The cornerstone and Christ. So let's look again at verse 7 of our passage in 1 Peter. Peter writes, This precious value, then, is for you who believe, but for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, this has become the very cornerstone. The the kind of golden-colored words are an Old Testament quote Peter is drawing upon, in this case, Psalm 118. He's quoting directly from Psalm 118, and we need to look at that psalm together right now. I won't read the whole for you, but I'll try and summarize it. Psalm 118 is a victory psalm. It celebrates the victory. The person speaking has experienced vindication and victory, and he's been blessed by God, and now he's celebrating that victory in a song of rejoicing. We're not sure who the main speaker is. It might be David, but it doesn't tell us in the text, so we can't be sure. But the psalmist is celebrating the fact that God has rescued him, God has fought for him, and now he's going to praise God in response. I'm just going to read a couple sections of the psalm for you today. So verses 10, 11, and 12 say this, "...all nations surrounded me in the name of the Lord, I will surely cut them off. They surrounded me, yes, they surrounded me. In the name of the Lord, I will surely cut them off." They surrounded me like bees. They were extinguished as a fire of thorns. In the name of the Lord, I will surely cut them off. So there's been an attack, and there's been and a, 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 the people are oppressing him, and there's been difficulty. But there's been his enemies have been wiped out. They've been destroyed, as if as if a, as if a fire through thorns, which burns quickly and burns hot. And so God has done a mighty work of salvation. He's removed the enemies. He's secured the victory. And the psalmist expands on his story in verses twenty-two, three, and four. And he says this, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. And then he says, this is the day which the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Okay, some of you, these are all famous words. Some of you, my wife is hearing songs in her head right now. I know she is. Some of you also have songs in your head, and that's okay. So in the Psalm, Psalm 118, the speaker, the person speaking is the rejected stone. He's the one who'd been judged inadequate, unlovely, irrelevant, and the builders or the architects who are workmen who are tasked to assemble their building, they wanted a different foundation stone. We don't want you, we want someone else, and they rejected him. But God, in rescuing the speaker, has shown his favor. In other words, the speaker is his foundation, not, the, not what the builders wanted, that's what God wanted. And the proof of God's choice is found in the experience of rescue. This may still be obscure, but I think this could become clearer for us. For Peter, and for us as well, it's clear that whatever else, whatever else Psalm 118 means, whatever it meant when it was originally written, these words also clearly apply to Jesus. And Peter's looking at this and saying, this is very clearly Jesus. Jesus was rejected by the people he came to save. He came and preached to the Jews, and the Jews didn't want that kind of Messiah. They were angry at him, and they rejected that foundation stone. They were the original builders. But God had chosen instead to build his kingdom on Jesus, and Jesus is the foundation stone of God's work in the world. And God proves that choice by raising Jesus from the dead. Jesus has won the victory over all his enemies, and so now he is God's pure foundation stone. Now, Psalm 118 has some startling implications for us. Because the cornerstone is God's chosen agent, because the cornerstone has been vindicated by God's victory, this means something like this. When you are fighting against the cornerstone, you're fighting against God. If you choose to take up arms and reject the cornerstone, you're actually fighting against the Almighty, and it's a losing battle. You're not going to win this one. Because God has chosen him and vindicated him. Now, that's why 1 Peter 2.7, it's not going to go back on the screen, but 1 Peter 2.7 says that this stone has value and precious to we who believe because we're fighting with God in the service of Christ. But it's ominous for those who disbelieve. They don't know it. But in opposing God's people, they're waging an impossible war against the God of the universe himself. So that's the first piece of theology of the cornerstone. That through Psalm 118, we understand that Christ is himself that cornerstone, and that his cornerstone status is both the statement of his past victory over death and his impending victory over the world. God's cornerstone cannot lose. Now, before I move to the next element of the cornerstone, I want to pause and mention of something about how the New Testament authors make use of the Old Testament. They quote the Old Testament all the time. It's their Bible. When Peter talks about reading the Word of God, he means... Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua. Those are the books he has in mind when he's talking about the Bible. And so they want to point you to this is their book. It was the one they inhabited and invested in, and they want you to know it. But they quote it all the time. And so um, often when we're reading our Bibles, we come across a quote from the Old Testament, and we think that there's a kind of one-to-one correlation. Oh, Peter found uh, the cornerstone language, and it was convenient, and he just pulled it out. But that's not what's going on. What happens is is there's a complex context, Psalm 118, that Peter then takes and layers over our situation. There's a story of someone who is oppressed but vindicated and justified by God, and that story now layers atop our story as the church, as the people of Christ, and the quote becomes the kind of linking tether between those two narratives. If this is complex, that's okay, but reading the Old Testament is complex, and understanding how the New Testament uses it is also complex. So let's move from one quote to the next one. Because the next area that Peter talks about the cornerstone is the cornerstone and election. The cornerstone and election. Now here let's look at 1 Peter chapter 2 verses 4, 5, and 6. Again, the golden words are the ones from the Old Testament. And coming to him, that is Jesus, as to a living stone which has been rejected by men, that is choice and precious in the sight of God, you also as stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For this is contained in scripture, behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. Now this time Peter is quoting from the book of Isaiah. In fact, it's Isaiah chapter 28. And the Israelites, you'll remember, were called out of Egypt, and they were called to live a different kind of life. They were called to reject the ways of the world and reject idolatry, and they were going to be God's kind of like showcase nation. And they were going to, through their conduct and life, and through their holy living, draw the world to God. Through you, all the nations of the world will be blessed, says God to Abraham, and this is His intention. But every time they kind of get on their own, they start to drift. They have real trouble. Um, they have real trouble staying focused on where God is, and so they pick up. Uh, habits and practices, and they start worshiping other gods, and they begin to make covenants outside of God's covenant, and they're kind of shaky on their obedience, and God calls them a stiff-necked people. A stiff-necked people is that is God has said, I want you to, to surrender to me, and every time they're kind of like, I will not bow, right? It's not the it's not I have a stiff neck because I'm kind of old, but they had stiff-necks because they hated obeying God. Okay, and so God is asking them to, and he sends, because they're not obeying, he starts to send prophets to call them out, and the prophets begin to say some dire things, like, you know, if you don't start obeying, you're going to lose it all, and I'm going to take it all away from you, and then sometimes they repent, and sometimes they don't, and there's this kind of spiral of despair that follows Israel around. And Isaiah chapter 28, verses 14 through 18, documents some of Israel's rebellion and God's response. It's one of these kind of standard passages. But there's some interesting stuff in it. Let me read it for you now. This is Isaiah 28, uh, beginning at verse 14. Therefore, hear the word of the Lord, O scoffers, who rule this people who are in Jerusalem. Because you have said, We have made a covenant with death, and with Sheol we have made a pact... The overwhelming scourge will not reach us when it passes by. For we have made falsehood our refuge, and we have concealed ourselves with deception. In other words, God has said, I'm going to judge you. And they said, well, we've made a side deal that will get us out of it. And God says, no, there's no side deals. You can't escape what I'm planning to do for you. This isn't going to work this way. Therefore, verse 16, thus says the Lord God, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a costly cornerstone for the foundation, firmly placed. He who believes in it will not be disturbed. And then he says, I will make justice the measuring line and righteousness the level. He's continuing at the architectural image, right? The stone is not just arbitrary. No, it's a stone that has justice and righteousness that's governing it. The hail will sweep away the refuge of lies and the waters will overflow the secret place. Your covenant with death will be canceled and your pact with Sheol will not stand. When the overwhelming scourge passes through, then you become its trampling place. So I'm going to do my thing and you're going to be destroyed because you're not being part of it, is what God says. And the cornerstone is doing something a little different. It's not the declaration of God's victory like it was in Psalm 118, but instead it's a signpost of his anger at idolatry. God's really angry about the idolatry of Israel, that his people are trusting in him, and they're trusting in the world. They're taking their cues for how to live from the world around them. They're not living as the kind of Z-axis people that God has called them to be. And this is showing up in their worship of false gods. And that's why it says in verse 16 that he who believes in this will not be disturbed. If you're trusting in God's work, you're going to make it. But if you're not, you're not going to make it. So in Isaiah, the cornerstone is God's answer to idolatry. It's is God's answer to idolatry in this case. Now, I hope it's obvious, but the passage in Isaiah also clearly points to Christ. Isaiah 28 points to Christ. Christ is the foundation stone laid in Zion, the precious stone that will ultimately become the foundation of God's work in the world. This is also pointing to Jesus, but it's pointing in a slightly different way. The answer to the problem of worldliness is to turn to Christ in this. But hang on. What I said was that this is about election, and I want to point to how that's the case. So let's look again at 1 Peter 2, verses 4 and 5, the verses that precede the Old Testament quote. Peter says, And coming to him, Christ, as to a living stone which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God, you also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Christ Jesus. For this is contained in Scripture, and then he quotes the Old Testament. Simply put, God has called a people. He's elected them, and he's elected them to be built onto the foundation stone of Christ. This is one of the places where the cornerstone meets us. Christ has been laid as a foundation, and we encounter that foundation by means of election. And this is what reveals that we are God's chosen people. Now, I need to pause for a moment because election is a funny concept. It's probably the longest-standing debate in Protestantism. The biggest point of contention and argument, how does God's sovereignty work? Does he choose some people and not other people? What's the level of his power? Do I have freedom in this choice? What's going on with these things? When I was at Christian uh, university many years ago, it was the hot topic at all the tables in the dining room. In fact, if you had a handful of marbles and you threw them out in the middle of the dining room, 50% of them would land on tables of people arguing about predestination. What's election? Does it work, right? It was all over the place. And I'd like to invite you to forget everything you know about election in this moment. And if you don't know anything about election, consider yourself blessed. That's okay. So just leave it be. So what is election? Election is very simply this. God makes a choice. God elects to do something. And the first thing, one of the first things we see God doing election-wise is that he chooses Abraham. He elects Abraham. He says, I want you. And I want you to be my agent. And he says, go and move to this place. And Abraham says, okay. He chooses from Abraham's family, David. I choose David to be my king. He chooses from David's uh, line of descent to join the human race in the person of Jesus Christ. And he chooses Jesus. And actually, the most important choice of God, the most important election of God, is that God chose Christ to be his representative on the world. That's the most important thing to know is that God made a choice. He chose to do things a certain way. Everyone else's election, everybody else's, yours and mine and anybody in the world in history is found in Jesus. Nobody has a kind of personal election like I'm choosing you and not you. God has chosen Jesus and we are found in him. And we are found to have been built on the cornerstone that is Jesus. And so in this respect, election is not about God choosing some people and not choosing other people. Election is the confidence we can have if we know that we are trusting in the foundation of Christ's work on the cross. So if you've ever wondered, am I among the elect? That's maybe not the right question. The right question is, am I living like the stone of the temple that I'm called to be? Am I living according to this axis parameter set by the cornerstone? If I am, I'm on the path of the elect. If I'm not, you've got to ask some other questions. Okay? So, I kind of want to change the parameters of how we think about it. Election is what happens when we trust in Christ, but it has consequences. And let's expand on these consequences. With Christ as our cornerstone, life as the elect means that He has become our north, our south, our east, and our west. He's our vertical axis, He determines where we go and how we do it, He's our grammar. He sets the standard and the parameters for how we live and move and act in this world. Christ is our cornerstone. If we are built on him, we are conforming to the pattern of the building that he has established. Okay? So I think this is what Peter means, and this is in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 10, where he says these things. This is in, from quoting from the ESV this time. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. Be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. Confirm your election. Well, if election is just God choosing some people and not other people, there's no way for you to confirm it. But if election is being built according to the pattern of the cornerstone, then you confirm it by conforming to that pattern set by Jesus as the cornerstone. This is how you can obey this commandment from Second Peter 1. Okay, it gets worse before it gets better. Third aspect of the cornerstone is judgment. The cornerstone and judgment. And here we get to look at 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 8, where it's described as a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. For they stumble because they are disobedient to the word, and to this doom they were also appointed. Okay, it's a third passage with a third Old Testament quote, and this time, um, excuse me, this time Peter is referencing Isaiah chapter 8, where Isaiah is again condemning and calling out Israel's idolatry. Uh, But this time, it's the judgment stone that causes people to stumble. Let me read Isaiah chapter 8, verses 14 and 15 for you now. Uh, Isaiah says, This time then he, God, shall become a sanctuary, but to both the houses of Israel a stone to strike and a rock to stumble over, and a snare and and a trap for the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Many will stumble over them, then they will fall and be broken. They will even be snared and caught." So here the story of the, stumbles, the stumbling stone becomes even more complicated because, and here's the deal, the same, excuse me, the same stone that is our foundation is also the world's judgment. The same stone that becomes the architecture of our salvation becomes the judgment of the world. God is establishing His work, and the work will both save His people and judge the world at the same time. If you'll forgive the cliché, this is probably the original killing of two birds with one stone. God's doing his work both ways at the same time. And what's striking to me about this aspect of the cornerstone is that the Lord should be himself the object over the which the world will stumble. He himself has become the thing on which either we are built for salvation or which the world becomes judged. He didn't pick something else. He says it's going to be in me or it's nothing. I think that's striking. Ha, striking. Striking. Now, this idea of the stumbling stone becomes even more interesting because there's some lots more Old Testament representation, and let me talk to you for a moment about Daniel chapter two. Maybe if you remember your Sunday school, you'll remember some of the the words won't be on the screen. Remember the king Nebuchadnezzar has this big dream, right? He wakes up one night, he's troubled by the dream. He sees this massive statue standing over the plains of Babylon, and the head of the statue is golden. And the chest and arms of it are are silver, and the, the waist and the upper legs are bronze, but it's got feet of clay. He's wondering, what's the meaning of this statue? And while he's watching the statue, a stone comes from the heavens. This is a stone not cut by human hands. A stone comes hurtling down, strikes the feet of clay, and the entire statue falls down, crumbles, and is turned to dust. And from that stone comes this mountainous kingdom. And he's like, what am I going to do with this? And Daniel, um, who's been placed in in this high place of authority, has the ability to interpret dreams, and he gives the answer. He says, well, this is talking about geopolitics, O King Nebuchadnezzar. There's a bunch of kingdoms coming, and one of them, the golden head, is you, and the silver chest is Greece, and this bronze bronze is a strong metal, stronger than silver and gold, although not as as valuable, is is this um, kingdom of Rome. And then finally, this feet of clay, or the last one is this feet of clay mixed with iron, is going to be Rome. And then what's going to happen is the stone is going to come, and it's going to destroy all of these geopolitical kingdoms, and from them will come God's divine kingdom. This is the going on. But everything is destroyed in the process. So why do we bring this up? Because the cornerstone not only judges individual people, but the whole world. The cornerstone comes to judge everything and everyone But there's something buried in this image that's also buried to buried, excuse me, also difficult to easy to miss. The cornerstone does not judge outsiders and leaves us alone. The cornerstone also judges us. Peter has this in mind. He says, Actually, I won't get there yet. Uh, Let's look at Luke chapter 20. Jesus is in a fight with the Pharisees. He's talking to them about their relationship. They're the builders. They're supposed to do the right thing, but they're rejecting the cornerstone. And he says, verses 17 and 18, Jesus looked directly at the Pharisees and said, what then is this that is written? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And he says, everyone who falls in that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls in anyone, it will crush them. Verse 18 is pretty clear. Everyone who falls on the stone is broken to pieces, okay? But when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. But hang on, let's make this super, super explicit. Judgment comes to everyone. Every single person is going to have some kind of encounter with the stumbling stone, with the foundation stone, with the cornerstone. Everybody gets broken by the stone. It's not a question of evading judgment. It's a matter of, will you be broken to be remade, or you'll be destroyed by it? It's a bit ominous. But the stone that judges is the stone that saves. This is the mystery of the cross for us. Everyone's going to be unmade by the work and the arrival of Jesus. We you be broken to be remade in his image. Like I said, Peter has this in mind, 1 Peter four seventeen. for it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? Now, hang on, this is an important posture for us. Judgment begins with the household of God. We're the people who have received the judgment of God first. We're not people in power looking out on the world saying, na, 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 we've got Jesus. That's not how it works. We don't get to judge the world. We're just the prejudged. We've submitted to his judgment already. There's no pride in this. You can't feel better than other people. There's only, I hope, a sense of mercy an eagerness for the world to make a similar choice. Okay, let me review this cornerstone for a moment. It's been heavy slogging, but here's my quick summary. First, Christ is the cornerstone. He's the foundation of God's work in the world, the reference point for all that is built upon him as God's chosen agent, according to Psalm 118. To fight against Christ is to fight against God himself. He's the foundation. Second, Christ is the cornerstone, is the basis of our election. We are built up on this stone. We are God's people because we are trusting on the foundation of Christ. Not because of our own worth, not because of our merit, not because we pleased him, not because we're beautiful and worthy on our own, but we are made beautiful and worthy by our alignment with this work of Christ. We are built into a pattern that is established by him. And third, the cornerstone is a stone of judgment. Everyone will be judged by Christ and Christ's standard. Everyone will be broken by this. But we will be saved if we are willing to be remade into the image of Christ. That's the meat in our sandwich. That's this giant hunk of meat between these two little ethical teachings. And so with this concept of cornerstone of the mind, we can return to the question of what Peter, excuse me, why Peter wants us to know these things. What's he on about? And I've got six things I think Peter wants us to know in light of this passage. I'm going to go through these pretty quickly, so don't panic. It's not six more hours, okay? It's just six pretty brief things. I think first, Peter wants us to know that God's Word, especially God's Word from the Old Testament, provides the basis, architecture, and direction of our faith. Peter wants you to know that your hope and confidence can be grounded in the Word of God, and he wants you to read it well, and he wants you to know that the Word is here for you. That's why he quotes so much Old Testament. You have access to the Word of God, which points you to the cornerstone, okay? That's one thing Peter wants us to know. Second thing Peter wants us to know is that we can have great confidence in Jesus. If we're built on Jesus, we can have confidence in Jesus. We can trust in Him. We can rely on Him. He is our foundation, our cornerstone, okay? On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name, trusting in him. Great confidence. Third, Peter wants us to know that built on the foundation of Christ, we are called to be priests. Our foundation comes with a job description. We are priests in God's new kingdom. That's what he was saying in 1 Peter 2, 4, and 5. I won't read it again right now. We are representatives of God. We are the world's access to God. We're access points. We are prayer ministers for the world. Anybody who needs God can go through us to get to Him, and then they can have their own access to Him later. We are agents of mission and prayer scattered throughout the world. Just like the Levites are scattered throughout all of Israel, we are scattered as priests throughout the world. This is part of our call. Fourth Peter wants us to know that built on this cornerstone foundation as the living temple, we have a duty for proclamation. He says this again explicitly in verses 9 and 10. You are supposed to proclaim it. And one of the things we proclaim is the cornerstone is here. Judgment is coming. Don't get caught out. Get broken now so you don't have to be broken later. Now's the time to bend your stiff neck toward God. We get to proclaim these things. Fifth, Peter wants us to know that because of Christ's role as the cornerstone, we are now God's beloved children. Not only are you like, you're not just masonry, you are beloved, and you are children, and you are drawn close to God, and he wants you. Uh, He's got this lovely couple other quotes, I won't deal with them at length, but he says, once you were not a people, but now you are my people. He's quoting from Hosea. If you don't know the story of Hosea, it's pretty grim. Hosea uh, is told by God to marry this woman, Gomer, and she's, uh, let's just say, she's not the most faithful of women in the world. And she's having kids outside of, he's having um, relations with other men, and um, he comes home and she has a baby, and he names one of the kids, Not My People, okay, because it's not his kid. And, and this is what he does. And then God says, I want you to change the name of your son from Not My People to My People to show how I embrace everyone. Whoa. And Hosea has to love a kid who's not his as a way to example how God loves us even though we are pretty weird and messed up. And so this is what Peter calls upon to say, you were once not a people, but now you are God's people. And God loves you and embraces you. Finally, number 6. Peter wants us to know that as a consequence of our being built on this foundation, there's some conduct that has to reflect the values of the kingdom. And here we come to the thin slices of bread around the cornerstone meat sandwich. In verses 1, 2, and 3, talk about ridding yourself of malice in your speech. Don't talk like the world. Speak well, speak kindly, draw people to Christ through your speech. And the verses 11 and 12 tell you to live such a life among the Gentiles, live such a pure life, such a startlingly new life, that they've got to ask questions about you. Your conduct should point to your king. And that's what it means to be built on this foundation.